The Elk Talk podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. Welcome to the Elk Talk podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson, presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building. It's like 120 yards away. What do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> happy Veterans Day, Corey. Hey, happy Veterans Day. Yeah, to all those who uh, are veterans and have given so much, uh, our greatest gratitude and thank you. Absolutely. And it's almost like thank you isn't isn't it, adequate. It's for, not. I, I wish. And I think that's wish. good because I think it, uh, it yeah. leaves us knowing that we're living in debt to them. And yeah. thank you's never enough. So every day we've got to wake up and remember. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you said it's snowing in Idaho today. What What's up with that? It's It, it never, it, there wasn't even any frost on my windshield here in Montana this morning. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, it's snowing here. It uh, we've had some wacky weather, but it's fairly it's it's starting to get consistent. We uh, our hunt that we went on, which we'll talk more about, I'm sure. But our first night there got down to five degrees, and mm. uh, we backpacked in, and so that was my first foray of backpacking in five to six miles, and then sleeping on a uh, on the ground in five degree weather. But I had oh, yeah. some uh, I had some amenities that made it pleasant. And, okay. Uh, but I mean, we were we were hiking in about sixteen inches of snow on that hunt. And, Whoa! Uh, yeah, it's like Wait, real. We, there is no snow on the ground in Montana. I yeah, mean, it got, is like we have just a skip of snow at our house. You know, it snowed just a little bit this morning, but you can see good snow on the mountains all around us. Yeah, I mean, you get a pie, there's some snow, but it's this is one of the warmest hunting seasons I remember in a long time. Wow. Yeah. In fact, uh, the the rivers this time of year are usually partially froze or at least have that pancake ice floating down. Yeah. But next week, I'm thinking I'm just going to take my jet boat out and go fishing in the, in the river and uh, float down and wait for a whitetail or a duck to come by or something. <laughs> I mean, the ducks haven't even started flying there yet, huh? No, hardly. Yeah. I mean, actually, there are a ton of ducks in this valley because there's a lot of agriculture and 
they're all in private, so it doesn't do me any good. But uh, when when we have warm years like this, the number of ducks that accumulate in this valley is crazy. And then the first 10 inches of snow we get, and they can't get down to all that grain stubble or, or grain waste, uh, then they're out of here. But <laughs> Oh, well. But this is about elk hunt, not duck hunt. That's right. Thank goodness. That's, yeah. I mean, I think I've shared my... Uh, my, I don't want to say disappointment, but uh, my differing uh, opinions of what to do during September. My youngest son Sam has found that uh, duck season opens during September for youth in Idaho, and mm-hmm. he's actually chosen to go duck hunting over elk hunting a few times. Wow! Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I can still relate love him, but you know. Yeah. My my son Matthew, he if you told him he could shoot a three hundred and forty inch bull elk in the parking lot, or he had to he could shoot one mallard by hiking over the Bridger Mountains, he'd have his shotgun on his shoulder and he'd be heading over the Bridger Mountains. I I mean the guy when it comes to waterfowl hunting, I think last year he told me he waterfowl hunted like twenty eight or thirty days. Oh. And I think I think he elk hunted four days maybe. <laughs> Like, oh, well, well, I mean, you have to get in 30 days of waterfowl hunting just to equal one day of elk hunting. Well, well, there you go. Now you got all those waterfowl hunters mad at us. But what the heck? <laughs> well, this is you an know. elk talk podcast. So. <laughs> yeah. It's talking about people being mad. So I come home from Colorado on Sunday, and my wife gives me the hug. You know, she hadn't seen me for a couple of weeks and uh, everything. And then I come in the house and I drop my bags. And uh, she she kind of has this, hey, Mr. Marriage Expert, I got a question oh, no. for you. <laughs> somebody, I warned you. I warned you. <laughs> somebody in our audience knows my wife. Oh, no. And ratted me out. She's never listened to this podcast. Uh Never in in our whatever six years of doing this. She has never listened to an episode. I told you. You you talk about marriage advice. If you want your wife to listen to something you say and to listen closely, you just tell her you're going to give some marriage advice. And I guarantee Uh you she will listen to every word. Not because she wants to learn, but because she knows you don't have a clue what you're talking about. Right. So, uh, needless to say, I'm still married. Yeah, that's good. She's like, you know, you sure think you know a lot about how women think. (laughs) I'm like, no, if you listen to that, honey, I was talking about how young men think. This was premarital advice, most of it. Uh, I'm pretty sure you said the best marital advice you can give is premarital advice. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, uh... So do you have heat out in your shop? Yeah, I do. I have a big blast blast furnace out in my shop. That's good. So you're staying warm at night, at least. Well, if... I, it was kind of weird because she said I bought some tickets to go hang out with my mom and my sister in Oregon. So, I've been... I, I was home for, like, two days and she's gone like okay <laughs> i can take a hint so uh, i uh uh what, what do you say man it's like well honey you know i am was i wrong i that and she's like 
well, you just think you know more than you do. <laughs> well, compared to you know, compared to what I knew when I was 24 and getting into this arrangement, I'm highly trained now. She's mm, like, oh highly, yeah, you highly trained, but that does not mean you know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I should I should uh, have a T-shirt. Don't don't mistake good training with intelligence. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we had a good laugh about it she's, she's, she's a good sport she but she always says i wish you'd put a disclaimer out there when you start giving this marriage advice because someone's going to follow it and it's going to be a train wreck for them and they're going to sue you <laughs> i'm like what are they going to sue me for i, I, I didn't i didn't Free charge advice? them anything yeah, yeah. so well, i walked out we, we have a home gym in our garage and my mm-hmm. wife, I, several, I may have even been a, a year or more ago, I walked out there and I could hear your voice coming through the speakers. And I thought, oh, what wow. is going on? And I realized she listens to the Elk Talk podcast while she's working out. And uh, I'm sure she's not listening to uh, learn to be a better elk hunter. <laughs> she's, she's listening to make sure that I don't say anything that I shouldn't. So I learned at that point that any marriage advice that I give is uh, is going to be advice that I've received directly from her and not advice that I make up on my own. Yeah. So I told my wife many times when she gets on me about my marriage advice stuff, she's like, well, you can't say this. You can't, you, you should, people should really know what I think about it. I'm like, that's why I keep asking you to be on the podcast. And she's like, I'm not, I'm not going to be on that podcast. Yeah. I'm like, well, you know, kind of like the old saying that if you don't get it on video, it didn't really happen. And, uh, so honey, if, if you don't get on the podcast and say it, guess what? It It's not fact. It's not yeah. true. So I think Kim and Jennifer need to have their own podcast. We, oh, we need to hand the mic over to them one time. Oh, man. <laughs> they ruin everything that we have. We'd, we'd never be elk hunting ever oh, again. Oh, man. Uh, or, or we'd never, we, we might be elk hunting, but we wouldn't have an audience that puts any credibility in, into anything we say. Uh, I'm surprised uh, we do anyway, but yeah, that would solidify it. Yeah. So anyhow, that was, that was interesting. Uh, you know, you know, when we went to Colorado, Matthew, my son had a deer tag for the second rifle season. And I had that tag 20 years ago, uh, same unit, same season dates, everything. And when I went there, I saw a bull elk, a legal bull every day that I could have shot. Wow. So that was 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Yeah. So I'm all excited. It's like, well, one of us could, should buy an elk tag, but oh, let's shoot the deer first. And then we'll worry about the elk. Well, it's a good thing because I did not see an elk. I didn't see a cow. I didn't see a bull. I, I didn't see a spike. I, I didn't see anything wow. in our five days there. So, uh, but Marcus found a, a really, really big, uh, well, for an over-the-counter unit, it's probably a 310-inch six-point deadhead. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, we're, we're glassing for deer, and the, the, he's a fanatic like you are about. <laughs> about say, he wasn't shed glassing shed for deer. <laughs> no. And uh, so he, uh, he hiked over there. It was a long hike. I'm like, well, it's the heat of the day. You know, you may as well trek on over there and, and pick it up. 
And so he just took off. No pack, no anything. He gets over there, and the thing is still got a lot of that leather. You know how when they die? And I'm giving narration. I'm watching him over there. And uh, he's trying to disconnect the leather that's still attached to the head to the neck and the under part of the body. And I'm giving narration. Oh, Marcus is going Neanderthal here. He's got a sharp rock and he's dragging that carcass around, pushing on that, that, that sharp rock to try cut the leather. And uh, he was over there for the longest time. Finally, he comes back and he's just sweating. He's like, I didn't bring a knife. You know how hard it is to cut the leather on an elk's neck with a sharp rock? I'm like, no, man, I call it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to cut that skin when it's fresh with a sharp knife, let alone when yeah. it leatherifies. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, what he should have done is taken my little saw over there because when we got back to camp, he just sawed the antlers off the yeah. off the pedicles. Anyhow, I'm like, well, why didn't you take the saw? You wouldn't have had to. But yeah, he was impressed. You guys who collect elk antlers are a different, you guys are cut from a different cloth. I, I've, I've come to realize that. I, I think if there would have been a 200 inch mule deer standing there, I don't think Marcus would have traversed that landscape as fast as he did to go pick up a deadhead. Yeah. And where that thing was located in that canyon, I, I wasn't going to walk over that far. I, I don't care if it was a 400 inch deadhead. I, I wasn't going over there. But, no. uh, but uh, yeah, I did find a deadhead mule deer. Did you? Hung, yeah. And then I hung it in a tree. And the next morning, the next, you know, sometime the next day, Matthew shot a nice buck. It, yeah. it works every time. I thought you were going to say sometime the next day, those antlers appeared in our camp and Marcus had found a deadhead in a tree. <laughs> uh no my my crew knows as you've seen when you've yeah. been with us that they're under strict orders that if you pull antlers that i hang in a tree if you pull them out of there uh, there's consequences so but yeah. anyhow all right folks application season's pretty much over and i hope you have that tag in your pocket Corey and i use go hunts insider and go hunt store all the go hunt tools for a lot of things in what we call planning and research season and this summer we're going to be out there doing that e-scouting with the terrain analysis tool we're going to be buying stuff out of that world-class gear shop the one stop for hunters is gohunt.com if you are like us you have that tag you got this hunt you got a plan for go out to gohunt.com use promo code elk talk and when you do that they're going to put fifty dollars of credit in your gear shop gohunt.com promo code elk talk and know that this is the one stop that you need as a hunter. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. ELKTALK podcast is also brought to you by the University of Elk Hunting. The University of Elk Hunting was founded by Corey Jacobson. It is now part of the suite of courses out there at outdoorclass.com. 
So if you want to sign up for the University of Elk Hunting and save some money, go out to OutdoorClass.com and use Elk Talk as your promo code, and you'll get 20% off. But more importantly, you're going to get the University of Elk Hunting. You're going to get other courses from Outdoor Class taught by Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, Randy Newberg, John Barclow, Hank Shaw, Jamie Teagan, and on and on and on. There you have it. OutdoorClass.com will get you the University of Elk Hunting. Just make sure you use promo code ELKTALK and save 20%. It was a lot of fun. Uh, been trekking and traversing, but I haven't had to deal with any five-degree weather. No. It was, uh, you know, I mean, it's, so here's a, I don't know if I'm supposed to say anything, so I, I better keep well, it. Well, say it then. No, well, I, no, yeah, no, no, no. I'll, I'll keep it vague, but okay. I, had a, uh, I had a prototype stove, titanium stove, that I was able to take with me. And uh, it's my first time that I've actually packed a stove and a teepee, with the exception of when we went to Alaska and I was never able to get a fire going. This time, I knew I'd be able to get a fire going because we were in Idaho and there's dry wood in Idaho. So I packed a, a titanium stove and uh, a teepee with me and it was incredible. Like you could lay there in the teepee on one side and have a bunch of firewood on the other side and all your gear and get this little fire just roaring in there. And, you know, you don't, I didn't keep it going all night, but man, it was sure nice to get back and have a fire to get your gear all sorted out and dry out. And then, to, you know, fire going while you climb in the sleeping bag and then you let the fire go out. And the next morning I could roll over in my sleeping bag without getting out of the sleeping bag, still on my sleeping pad and put a fire in that stove and get it going and lay there for about 15 minutes and let it get nice and warm and then get out and get dressed and get ready to go and, mm -hmm. and it was it was awesome even in five degree weather me who mm -hmm. gets cold when it's usually you know under 52 degrees <laughs> i was playing comfortable the whole time yeah hmm. well that's interesting i that's different than how I do things. I first of all, if the forecast is five degrees, I don't, I don't do anything but a wall tent with a big <laughs> stove and a couple cords of firewood. Uh, and uh, it's hard to backpack with a wall tent. You ever tried it to is. put a wall tent in your back? Nope, but I've uh, put one on a llama once and thought, I'm glad the llama's carrying it, not me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those little wall tents that Bo makes, or you know, that he sells, they fit perfectly in a, in one pannier yep. uh but uh so the bigger question is did you get an elk did you have to pack an elk up so i went scouting the week before just because mm -hmm. i knew well isaac and i actually rode motorcycles into the area you know within eight miles of where we wanted to go and i realized this isn't a motorcycle ride for hunting it's you know it, it's a technical trail and once there's snow on the trail, it becomes pretty much impossible mm. to motorcycle on. So yeah. I hiked into the area about five days before we went in there, and it was an absolute nightmare. I've never seen so many blowdown. Like it was a tangled matchbox of blowdown, just mm. horrible. But I did yeah. find one one saddle that we could go up kind of an open ridge and pass through that saddle and then drop down into the canyon on the next side. And I thought that's gonna be our path. So we did it. Uh, there was snow now on the ground, which when I scouted it, there wasn't. So every one of these blowdowns now was covered in snow and about 10 times as slippery. 
And it took us seven hours and 55 minutes to go in 5.1 miles. Oh. Never, never hiked that slowly before. And it was just a matter of, you know, we had a about a thousand foot climb and then a thousand foot descent and then another thousand foot climb just going over ridges to get back in there uh, over that five five point one miles. But we made it and uh, we actually bumped elk from the point that we put our camp on. So we were right in the middle of the elk, which... <laughs> You know, in, in archery season, I wouldn't get that close. In rifle season, I thought all they're going to do is move over to the open hillside across from us, which is perfect. And they did. The problem is there was not, there were, there were only about three openings in the entire unit that we could actually mm -hmm. see to shoot on. Yeah. All three of them were 1,000 to 1,200 yards away. So too far to shoot and very hard to get into to gun range of those openings. The next day we did, I don't remember, it was five or six miles that we hiked and it took nine hours. Uh, that was hunting without camp on our back. So just a day pack, it was just such slow going, just solid brush, blowdowns everywhere. And we got to the glassing point that I had identified. And that glassing point gave us a view of about 120 yards. And that was it. <laughs> Oh, we man. did. Well, I literally walked to the glassing point, pulled up my binoculars, and looked down through the only opening I could see. And there were a herd of about thirty elk that came through there in a nice, nice bull, not a big bull, but a you know small <laughs> six point. And the cows were going crazy talking, and the bull let out one little bugle. And this was you know the last week of October. We stayed until November first, uh, mm -hmm. and he bugled, but never saw him again. And honestly, I wouldn't have shot him back in there because we were a good three miles from camp and then another five miles from the truck. So it would have been an eight mile pack that probably would have taken 12 Days. hours one way. Yeah. So didn't, you know, and we realized then that we can't shoot one any farther back in than we are from camp. Uh, I heard more bugling in five days in there than I probably heard in all of September. We wow. Had, we had bulls bugling from camp every night, every morning. All I had to do is let out a cow call and bulls would light up across the canyon. Uh, but they were all raghorns and little bulls and cows. We yeah. probably saw 70 or 80 cows in there. We probably saw 10 different bulls. But the biggest yeah. bull I saw was maybe a like 270-inch type six-point and only saw him once. Mm -hmm. And uh, just, you know, we... I don't want to give away everything. We did pack elk out. Uh, I still had my tag the last night we were there, and we listened to a bull bugle probably 50 or 60 times as we slipped in on him and got to within about 120 yards of him. Uh, had wolves howling. There were wolves in there. We had them howling two different times from camp. Uh, but it was, a, you know, it was a, it was a, I don't know. I, it wasn't fun. It wasn't a fun hunt. It was a tough hunt. I went in there hoping that we would be in the area where all the elk stack up from all the hunting pressure because nobody else would be dumb enough to go in there. I got that part right. Uh, I figured it would be a place that big bulls would go as a sanctuary. I can't confirm that that was the case because I didn't see a big bull, but I also don't think the big bulls would have been with the cows and the herd still. I think the young bulls were in thinking, oh, we caught the tail end of the rut. Everything's, this is awesome. And they were still talking, but I think the big bulls had moved off by themselves and were just 
impossible yeah. to find, especially in that country. Yeah. Dang. But you got to pack some elk out. So yeah. that, I know you, I know you live for that. So yeah, that was, a, and it wasn't as bad as it could have been. It was in absolutely the best location for that area that we could have shot an elk in. Okay. So it, it wasn't an easy pack. You know, we had camps, we had to pack camp out first, the first day, then we had to go back in the second day without anything and pack elk meat out. And then we had to decide what to do with uh, the rest of our hunt after that, whether to go back in or hunt from a base camp. Hmm. Well, that's a heck of a deal. Yeah. But you made a comment, uh, I think it was in our last episode, that hunting a mature bull elk in the post-rut before they transition into late season habits is probably the hardest time frame to hunt yep. a, an elk in. And I would agree. Like it's the, the small bulls and the cows, every open hillside that we found, we could find those elk on. But yep. I could not find a mature elk. And that was, you know... Again, limited glassing, but we were glassing across the big canyon that had a lot of open hillsides. We saw cows. We saw a couple nice bulls, but not big bulls, and they weren't even huntable. I mean, there's no way we could have got to them and hunted them. Uh, yeah. But where we were hunting, it just, we couldn't, you know, going through the brush, the blowdowns, all the thick terrain in there, there's no way we could get close enough to shoot an elk, especially with six inches of crunchy snow on the ground. Uh, yeah. And then any opening that we saw, the big bulls just weren't in those openings, even at long distances, you know, glassing at first light and at last light, we still weren't picking out big bulls in any openings. Hmm. Well, I stand by that fact that the, the post-rut period that kind of runs till about November 1st, you know, plus or minus a few days, is the toughest time to kill an elk. And from that point forward, every day between now and whatever rifle seasons are still open, it gets easier and easier and easier. Yeah. And I think there's a period at the beginning of the rifle seasons in most states. We waited until the very end, hoping we would catch, you know, the transition into the late season and catch mm -hmm. those big bulls moving down to a, at least a transition point. Yeah. And I wish we'd have went opening day because I guarantee you, based on what I saw in archery season, what I saw with the younger bulls, I guarantee that on October 15th, big bulls were still bugling in there. And I wish really? we went in there with a rifle the first part of the season. When there was no snow, the weather was better. We wouldn't have had to pack as much camping gear. And the big bulls that are in there, they know they're in there. I think they'd have still been bugling. We had a chance to catch up to one. Well, I noticed I didn't get an invite. <laughs> I totally invited you. <laughs> and I told you, it's, uh, there, there's a lot of blowdown in there, and you're like, yeah, no thanks. Yeah, I know, because I, you know, in Colorado has all this beetle kill, right? Yeah. And that stuff started dying off 20 years ago, and now it's all blowing over. And in 2020, I think it was, yeah, I uh, hunted an area that was just loaded with beetle kill. But there were a lot of elk in there, and they'd pick their little trails that you don't really know how they're navigating it, but somehow they do. Yeah. And I shot my bull about a little over a mile from our camp, and I went back and got the llamas, 
And to pick through all of that blowdown to bring that elk back to camp, we put on almost, I think, just under four miles of zigzagging back and forth around this tree and up over this root ball. And it's like, this is a pain. This, yeah. this is this just sucks. <clears throat> and, you know, you think, well, I'm just going to straight line it through here. Well, if you have... 60 pounds on your back or a llama's got 100 pounds on its back it's not gonna do the steeplechase and hurdle all these blowdowns yep so when you told me about blowdowns my mind kind of flipped back to that colorado hunt and that's where mm-hmm. i think i said thanks but no thanks yeah so yeah uh, that's a, that's actually why i went in there scouting ahead of time was to see if we could get llamas in there because i had some llamas bow had I'd reserved with Bo, and I thought, I better go in there and just make sure we can get llamas in there. And it was impossible. There's no way to get llamas into where we went. So I called him up and said, hey, we're not going to be able to take llamas in there. Yeah. Well, what you found is a post-rut sanctuary because most hunters are going to look at that and say, you know what? I don't need an elk that bad. I am not, I am not climbing and scrapping and uh, stumbling through this mess. Yeah. Well, in a state with a lot of hunting pressure, like Idaho, general seasons, kind of like Montana, Colorado, Wyoming, all, all four of those states, even in some parts of Oregon, those bulls know year after year, guess what? Not a lot of people are, either foolish enough or stout enough to stumble in here yeah and so they 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 go hang out in there and the odds are there were some of those bigger bulls in there but they're not the ones bugling yeah they're 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 not the ones snorting and uh, acting like you know it's still the peak rut yeah those are those are the two and a half maybe some three and a half year olds that are are doing that foolishness that's exactly what we saw yep there was nothing they were all two and a half year old raghorns three and a half year old five points and then that one i saw two bulls that were six points both smaller six points but they were you know it was funny because the one there was a saddle we could see from camp we just glassed right from our camp and it was about 1200 yards across to the saddle and every single evening the cows would pour through that saddle and the first night i think there were seven bulls that came through there with the cows and again spikes raghorns just little stuff and i think it was on the second or the third evening uh, i saw this nicer bull which you know looking back now i probably should have got more excited and tried to get over there and find a place to get a shot because you know i i really was thinking we would see at least one or two big bulls but we saw him, he came out to the edge of the opening in the saddle, stood and watched all the cows file through, and then he turned and walked up the ridge in the trees, and we never saw him again. Like, he did not come through that one little opening. He stood on the edge of it, watched all the cows go through it, and then he turned and walked around. He just wouldn't step into the opening. He wasn't a big bull. So, you know those big bulls that time of year, they've recognized that, hey, somebody steps into an opening, they... Uh, Next time we see them, they're getting a ride in little white bags, and it doesn't yeah. look pleasant. So I'm not going <laughs> to step in that opening. And, and they just, those big bulls get so smart that time of year that if they aren't bugling and you aren't in an area where you can glass and, and find them, they're impossible. Yeah, yeah and that's kind of, you're, you're past the point where they're active and calling and 
pushing cows, but you're not yet to that point where the daylight's getting shorter, the temperatures are getting colder, the snow is getting deeper, and they have to come out. Just yeah. say they have, you know, you start getting into this time in November, they they need to at least maintain the what little fat they have left. They're, they're not going to get fat on the forage that's out there right now. But if they can at least keep an even keel. So they're out more in the morning and they come out earlier in the afternoon and they will. Now they're in groups of, you know, four to eight, three to eight, whatever. So they're more visible. They're having to feed more. So that's why it starts getting easier as you get into November. That, I mean, you look at the number of emails we've got in the last couple of weeks about guys <laughs> who, who hunted that last two weeks of October and what a challenge it was for Didn't them. Didn't see any elk. And how do you find yeah. elk? Because they're, the tracks we saw were all going to private and we didn't see anything on public. And well, there's the sanctuary. Yeah. So did you see that picture I sent you? <laughs> I did get a screenshot of... Uh, you, it, it almost reminded me of like an old calendar photo from the 1980s. You know, you got the one where the guy's kind of squatted down next to a tree and his rifle's just out of reach and there's a bull elk standing there looking at him. And it wasn't mm -hmm. quite like that, but it uh, there was something going on in the picture that we probably yeah. need a story for. Yeah, there was me and a five-point bull elk and my rifle being drawn down on that bull elk and it was on public land and it was opening day of elk season in montana and you still have your elk tag with you as we speak right i still have my elk tag with me so there's a story here about why randy didn't shoot a bull elk on opening day when he had the rifle to his shoulder and the bull elk standing in front of him yeah i'm a man of my word i, I if i tell you this is how it's going to be that's how it's going to be so my unnamed camera guy who oh, name was him. no was it no no was it Michael it was it Marcus it no oh. it, it, it wasn't Michael or Marcus well those are the two no. that I would like to give a hard time to so okay we so anyhow uh, this camera guy is one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet and when I told him, hey, Gerber's coming to town, we're going in a couple days early with all these llamas, you know, going five, six miles in, he went in and scouted, while we were up in Canada, he went in and scouted for the camp location and everything, and I'm like, dang, thanks for doing that. I, you need to, sh you, get, you get first shot if a, if a legal bull comes by. He's like, oh, cool, all right. <laughs> so... Gerber comes with all this prototype gear that we're working on and that we're uh, doing video and they they brought a videographer and a camera guy and their director of, of uh, cre creative director. So it's three of them and me and my camera guy. And none of the Gerber guys have tags. They just want to come along and get authentic camp shots and all this stuff. And so... But they want to tag along for the hunt part of it. Yeah. And so I, I, I thank God we had six llamas because I carried enough food to feed a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, so the, we got in two days before season. I cooked a big dinner that night. We went and scouted the next day. And down on private, there are just elk everywhere. But 
all the herds of cows had either raghorns or five points with them. There was, the, I bet you we saw that day of scouting close to 100 cow elk, and we probably saw 20 bulls down on private, but not a single one of them was a six point. Wow. Which, back Matches, to your point, yeah. right? That, and they, they, these young guys were bugling, and they'd run off all the spikes. So we saw some groups of spikes, you know, eight or ten spikes in a group <laughs> because they got run off by the raghorns who a month ago got run off by the six points. And so it's like, you know, kind of like when you're riding the school bus when you're, you know, in eighth grade, you know, the tenth grader, he throws you out of his seat. And then, you know, it, you, when you become a 10th grader, you throw somebody out of the seat. So, but, but what's funny is the 8th the graders never never learn that you get six or eight of them together ganging up on a 10th grader, and they could do some damage. And those spikes, it's the same. Like, that group of spikes could go in there and probably take over that herd, but they just don't work together. No, they're not smart enough yet. No. They're they so anyhow in montana spikes aren't legal in most units and it's not in this unit but not that that really matters but your observation was identical to our season here opened october 21st so right in the core of the the post rut yep. and uh can i just say no way, we hunted montana with you during rifle season one year in a unit where you can't shoot spikes i think it's i think it's a phenomenal management idea just because we saw so many two and a half and three and a half year old bulls, you know, yeah. just there were five points everywhere, which is a lot more exciting to see than a spike. Yeah. And just by not shooting the spikes, it created a, you know, I wouldn't say mature elk pool, but a, a better elk pool. And I, I thought it was a great management tool. And I wish we yeah. did it here in Idaho because I mean, I love, I, I've never shot a spike. I do it yeah. in a heartbeat in a rifle season, you know, cause they're good mm -hmm. eating, but I've never shot one, and I think uh, I think it goes a long ways towards improving the quality of of the bulls in an area. Yeah, and if you think about how much smarter a two and a half year old bull yep. is compared to a year and a half old spike, yep. uh, if you can get them through that year and a year and a half old phase, they now are the, their chance of escapement and growing into a a six point or an older bull gets astronomically yeah. higher. Totally. Yeah. So, and then what you have is you have a lot of hunters who are like, oh, there's a legal bull. Boom. So they shoot these raghorns. So more of the elk get recruited up into the six point, you know, three and a half, four and a half, five and a half year old. So it's the tool Montana uses that allows us to have heavy hunting pressure, long seasons, and still have a decent age class. Yeah. So. But anyhow, sorry, I didn't uh, mean to distract us there, but you no. mentioned spikes in that season. I just, it reminded me of, you know, we see a lot of spikes here in young bulls and the only way they get big is if you don't shoot them. And most of us, myself included, we don't get too picky towards the end of season. And if the <laughs> regulations allow it, then those young yeah. bulls don't make it to the next year. So, yeah. So, uh, on this hunt, we, we went and did all that scouting in the night before season, uh, some of those younger bulls were coming, they, they were on public and, and I'm like, all right, Jace. Oh, there, I just read it. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Jace. Oh, uh, so, uh, we're, we're kind of cooking dinner that night and talking about boy tomorrow morning. Well, we were counting on hunting pressure on the private down below. 
because in the past, before the new owner took over, they that group allowed some hunting pressure <clears throat> or some hunting. But I had no idea what the situation was with the new owner. So we get up there, and there's not a single hunter out there on the private. And there's just herds of elk. Just like, hmm, man, man. I wonder what all that noise is up there on the public. <laughs> Boy, we hear some loud firecrackers or something up there. <clears throat> so it was mostly an exercise in, in viewing elk. Uh, but uh, about 11 o'clock opening day, uh, it's it's warm. It's 60 degrees. It's nap time, right? You know, you're kind of facing to the southeast and... So uh, I look over in the Gerber guys, man, they're in nightmare number four or something. <laughs> so I lay down. I kind of put my cap over my, my eyes to block the sun. And Chase says, ah, I'm going to go for a little walk. I'm like, uh, okay. Uh, but, you know, it's noon. What, what What's the harm? Well, I wake up. The, the Gerber guys, and uh, I'm like, hey, you got any things we want to shoot right now? It's kind of the dead period of the day. Let's get it done now. And so I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Mark, the one camera guy, I tell him, I said, you know how this works. The younger guy, he's got to go run around the hills, and us old guys, we just sit here and they all just walk by. And this is, I said that at like, I don't know, a little before noon. He's like, is that how it works? I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I can't tell you how many times I've just sat there and someone ran an elk by me. So they, they're like, okay, here's the shot list. And so they have me doing this and doing that. And they're filming me and taking photographs. And I look up, and here's a five-point bull walking right into our setup. I mean, we are as exposed on this ridgeline as you could possibly be. There's about five spruce trees to give us a little bit of shade. <laughs> And uh, I'm like, guys, here comes a bull. And they're like, what? I'm like, look, here, he's coming right now. He, get ready. And I'm looking like, where's my camera guy? Where's, where, where, where's Jace? And uh, I'm like, well, tag with it. So I grabbed my rifle, and that's when you see the screenshot of me kind of leaned on my, you know, down on one knee. And the bull walks up to 98 yards, and I'm ranging him, and I got him in the crosshairs, and I'm like, thinking boy this guy he is dead uh <laughs> but i promised jace the first shot and it, you get this stuff going through your head like well he's he's not a raghorn he's a five point oh jace where are you finally i i've got him in the crosshairs and he's just like so dead he had no idea finally with all the shuffling of of all four me and the three gerber guys up there he looks up at us and we're exposed on this ridge and he's like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm sure that was just what did I walk into here. And uh, once he sees us, he stands for, you know, three or four seconds like they do once they see you sometimes. Yeah. And then he just takes off running down the drainage and pops out down on some private there. And he might still be running for all I know, <laughs> but uh, about, 15 minutes later, I see Jace come walking down the ridgeline, and the four of us are just have this smirk on our face, and he's looking around like, what's what's up? Yeah, you should look at Mark's camera there and see what's on the footage or on the screenshots. 
Jace looks at it. He's like, when did this happen? I'm like, "Mm, about 20 minutes ago. He's like, what? So he feels terrible. But he says his defense is that if he wouldn't have went on this hike up there, he claims he bumped the bull to us. Probably. Uh, he might have. Yeah. The bull came from the south, that came down this drainage on the south side of the ridge. He went around the north side of the ridge. But it, it, I'll, it maybe could have. But I bet you if he hadn't bumped that bull and we all would have sat there patiently, that bull would have been trying to sneak back to private. And he would have walked right past us about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. So... I'm a man of my word, Corey. If I tell you you get first shot, I'm not shooting. That's, I mean, that's pretty stellar. But, no, like, but if you told me I get first shot and I was off on a stroll and a bull walked right into your setup, mm-hmm. I'm not there for that shot. So I don't get that shot. If you and I are standing side by side and you tell me I get first shot, then I would appreciate if you kept your word. But if I take mm-hmm. off and a bull comes into you, I don't get first shot anymore. That's yeah. Well, I didn't know if he just went to take a dump or what. (laughs) I I, I didn't know. I thought he might just be, you know, right around the bushes there or something. So, but anyhow, the Gerber guys were kind of disappointed because they'd brought a bunch of prototype knives that they wanted me to work on an elk with. (laughs) And uh, they looked at each other like, Hey, I thought we were here to shoot an elk and get a bunch of, pictures and uh, you know stuff of carving on an elk with these these knives and saws and it's like well sorry guys we'll have to shoot one tomorrow <laughs> and uh well then the next day <clears throat> this is this gets to this uh post-rut mature bull behavior uh there's this big timbered ridge that runs out into the private Again, same replication out in the bottom of the private. There's, you know, 80, 100 cows in different groups and small bulls and spikes. And there's four six-point bulls, one of which is probably like a 320-ish bull. And where do you suppose they are? They're on that timbered ridge out there on the private, about (laughs) 150 yards at most, maybe not even that, into the private. And that's where they spent the day. Yep. And then they disappeared somewhere even further into private. So and they weren't they, hanging out with the herds. They were nearby, but no. they weren't out in the right. open with the herds. They were, yeah. No, they were a half, three quarter mile from all the chaos going on with the little guys. So here are four six point bulls, all four and a half or older, who probably had been fighting and arguing just a month earlier and probably had fought each other a couple times. And they're just like, nah, I think we'll hang out here together. You know, we'll we'll pool our resources. You bed and look that way. You bed and look this way. And yeah. <laughs> we're safe. So we got some footage of them. You know, but so that's just a classic post-rut experience. What you and I both experience is so classic for post-rut. I like yours better, October. though. 60 degrees. Sea yeah. milk. I mean, that's your sounds yeah. like a more enjoyable post rut experience. Yeah, but I looked at the weather forecast. I climbed up a ridge and got some coverage and got a weather forecast, and it said, "Oh, an inch of rain starting the next morning. Temps drop 
snow, converting to snow, heavy winds. And I told the guys, I'm like, look, we're almost six miles in here. Do you guys want to get soaking wet and ruin all your camera gear uh, and leave tomorrow? Do you guys want to leave tonight in the dark after we hunt all day? And uh, I had no dissenting votes that we should be. <laughs> we should leave after the hunt on the second day. Well, like all weathermen, it didn't start raining late that night. It started raining at about 3.30 in the afternoon. So we packed up a soak camp, mm-hmm. got them on the llamas, hiked out in the dark, and uh, then I got to hang everything in my shop and dry it out. It's like setting up camp again when I got home. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, there should we should do we should get a weather forecaster on this podcast and just find out what where do they come up with these forecasts like yeah. is it just a flip of a coin or you know I mean, is there's, it, you talk about and i know you said it before but i can't imagine any other job where your job is to forecast something but you can be wrong 75 percent <laughs> of the time and still have a job and still get pay raises like that's just <laughs> And we give weathermen a hard time. I think everybody does, but it's like, why do we even have weather forecasts? Yeah. They're very rarely accurate. And with the technology we have today, we should be able to do a better job. And if we can't, then do we really need to be trying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was right about it turning to snow. Yeah. Because, Because the next day, it turned to snow and it actually got cold. It got down to like four degrees or something yeah i think that's right when we started hunting was right when you packed up and left is when we were going in yeah and here is how people in bozeman self-identify that they've only lived here for six months (laughs) they are the people i live four miles south of town and the speed limit 60 coming into town they're the people going 70 on glare packed ice roads who are down in the rhubarb across the ditch and through the the fence it's like well that guy just moved here about three or four months ago and i I, boy that week that last week of october if you would have been in the tow truck and body shop business you probably could have made enough money in a week to retire (laughs) welcome to Welcome Welcome to the, 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 yeah, to the Rockies, right? Where every little valley town gets all these new arrivals. But the other part, when I came back, I had six llamas over in my, my spare lot. And Marcus called me. He's like, hey, I see it's supposed to stop snowing and get really cold. I want to come and grab those llamas. And me and a buddy and my wife, Kara, we're going to go in for about four days of elk hunting. I'm like, cool, come get them. So they did that, and those are wonderful conditions. Once all that weather blows through and you got 10 inches, 12 inches of snow and it gets cold, then those bulls start having to feed a little more also. And needless to say, the llama's got to work out on that trip. (laughs) But anyhow, that's just kind of the the post-rut period now we're we're into this you know what i call late season period of november and i i know people are saying well it's warm in montana or it was warm in wyoming or whatever the hunting if you have a season that's open right now it just gets better and better every day and for bull elk anyhow yeah. so so 
you're you're going to Arizona, right? Late yep. rifle in Arizona this year. You still have a tag there, still going yep. down. Yeah, me and my son have tags down. There. How how does it change there? Because I mean, they don't get the bitter cold. They don't get the you know I have to right. go out and feed. So how does post rut and late season? Yeah, know, what's what's Arizona. the what's the status of the elk down there during that time? Arizona and New Mexico, it's you know that's more horizontal territory yeah. than it is vertical like where we live so they disperse horizontally rather than vertically but they still disperse the bulls break off into their bachelor groups and they just know that when the days start getting shorter somewhere along the way an awful lot of vehicles start driving around and camps are getting set up and you know, about that time, old Pete, he stood around by the road last year and he got a victory lap in somebody's Silverado or something. Uh, <laughs> they just figure it out. They they know, at least the mature bulls. Yeah. And so they are in sanctuary areas. And what are sanctuary areas in these flatter environments? Well, if you do find a canyon, that's a sanctuary area. If you find a place that's roaded or gated where the rest of the stuff is roaded, those are sanctuary areas. Sometimes these big, vast carpets of pinion juniper are a sanctuary because once you dive in there, you can't see anything. Yeah. And they're not calling. They're not bugling. So do they come so, out? I mean, like, we, we would rely, you know, obviously on elk needing to feed because it's cold they've got to replenish body fat all of that and we would hope that we would be able to catch them out on an open hillside any of that like in those landscapes are yep. they out feeding are they still glassing in a canyon on an open hillside yep that's i mean i if you look at my uh uh e-scouting I have every water source marked and anything that's a canyon or a gated off area within two miles of that water source, that's, those are my e-scouting places. And, and are the uh, elk still hitting water sources consistently during that time? Yeah. I mean, the, the smart ones, they know it's a nighttime affair. Yeah. The younger, you know, the cows, they'll come in four in the afternoon and some of the younger bulls will the older boys they you know they just know the drill they they got to be six, six years old for a reason but the places to consistently find them are those canyon areas where most people don't want to go and then there are some places in arizona and new mexico that do have some elevation and terrain and that's the other place where a lot of guys just don't want to go and uh you know we'll set up when we hunt those states, we'll set up on a little point overlooking a canyon, or we'll set up on a little knoll that overlooks a big carpet of pinion juniper, or we'll get on an opposing face where it's a, a mountain or a hillside, and we'll we'll get on the opposing face. And if you see them feeding, you may not get to them that day because they're you know a mile and a half away, but they're not going to be far away in the morning, and so you make sure you're there right at daylight and usually they are and uh no, so, we talked about yeah. i mean we, we were sitting there it was you know about 10 degrees in the morning we're trying to glass and my hands are going numb because it's so cold out i can only hold them up on the binoculars for about <laughs> a minute and a half and i have to put them back in my pocket and i thought i wonder what the late rifle hunts in arizona are like compared to this i bet it's warmer but you don't have to backpack in with a bunch of blowdown 
And uh, it definitely got me thinking that if I'm going to do a late season rifle hunt, I should probably be looking at a a place that's more of a vacation climate than a survival climate. I mean, you get in some spots in Arizona up on what they call the rim, the Mogollon Rim, or yeah. even in western New Mexico or northern New Mexico. You know, your elevations are 8,000 feet. So yeah. I've I've had some hunts, the late season hunts in Arizona, where it was below zero. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of shocks you a little bit. <laughs> the, the flip side of it is, though, most days it gets up in the 30s or 40s. And... Uh, but the bulls, they, they, it's just like everywhere else. The, the older bulls respond to hunting pressure. And even though these aren't states with general seasons, they still find these sanctuary areas that just nobody wants to mess with. And, you know, in New Mexico, there's a lot more private land than there is in Arizona. And so they, they know where those boundaries are. They, they don't have, you know, go hunt maps on a phone or anything, <laughs> but they... <laughs> They somehow know it. They know right uh, where that line of pressure always just yeah. mysteriously stops. Yeah. And for me, I have, when, you know, these are always short seasons in those states. I try to get, if there's ever a place where the two days of scouting pays dividends, it's a hunt like that. So I'm getting down there two days early and I'm going to go check every one of my or as many as I can of my top e-scouted locations. And see what I find and opening morning I'm going to have a place where I want to be based on what I find but then once the shooting starts it's like okay where are the elk going to go in response to this and I have a whole nother series of of places I'm going to look at once the the hunting pressure gets pretty intense so I I'll abandon what might be my best spot for opening day and I might never go back there once the shooting starts because it's like you know what they're gonna bail out of here so we'll see i might come home and tell you Corey, we didn't see an elk don't listen to anything i said (laughs) Uh, i'm just looking uh in my go hunt point tracker here i jumped in to see i've got too many points in arizona to burn them on a late hunt right now i think i'm up to 17 points there so i'm gonna get uh, another good archery rut hunt in there but after that i might uh maybe start looking at at doing something uh later in the season colorado i burned my elk points a couple well last year and so i'm slowly starting to build that i'll probably do the same thing there just something that's a lot easier to draw deer in colorado i'm sitting on back up to 17 or 18 points but you and i were talking about montana and i've got Mm -hmm. uh i'll have nine nine points nine bonus points in montana of course they wiped out all my preference points because if you have more than two they kick you back down to zero so yeah well the good news the good news is you got better chance of drawing montana with zero points than you do with one that's that's, yeah you were doing telling me about the math on that i just thought that's so messed up that's yeah that's that's like russian math or something yeah. there and that doesn't make any sense but uh so yeah i'm i'm gonna be in arizona on december 1st so i'm not gonna be i'm gonna be far away from service so i'm not gonna get the chance to involve myself in your idaho chaos that yeah i don't you guys cooked up that anyone who wants to frustrate themselves i'm gonna give you a chance to do this on december 1st folks 
log into sign into your account i don't know like a half hour before the posted time or an hour before the posted time and the general deer and elk tags are going to go on sale at i can't remember is 9 a.m 10 10 a.m okay and all of us non-residents get thrown in a they call it a green room i guess waiting room waiting Waiting room. room yeah yeah and then they randomize us and put us in a line. And then the first maybe 100 people are going to be there. And then the site's going to crash. And you're going to lose your place in line if you bail. So, I I mean, I understand that Idaho residents couldn't give two poops about how bad this system is. But <laughs> it, it is the most messed up, screwed up system for allocating tags of any system (laughs) i have ever seen it's like you guys must have hired some engineers to say let's let's see just how frustrating we can make this process so it's just it boggles my mind to to think that we are in 2023 mm -hmm. and there's been online applications for a long time yeah, and this is the the system they came up with as the best system for non residents obtaining a tag. Yeah, and it's just I mean, so we've we've made some changes. Uh, Idaho's cut back on the amount of tags that are issued to non residents for deer and elk yep. in the last few years. Uh, yep. they used to be if there were non resident tags available, and they would never sell out. Residents could right. buy them as a as an extra tag starting on mm-hmm. August first. There were times I would buy a leftover non-resident elk tag at the end of September, and there were still tags yeah. available. Yeah, they just didn't. But obviously, things have changed on the landscape, and a few years ago, they started selling out. So mm-hmm. now, December 1st is the date when those tags become available, and they sell out within a couple hours if they can keep the system up long enough to sell them out. If not, <laughs> sometimes it's eight hours or ten hours by the time they get the system back up and people buy those, those tags. Mm-hmm. But... It is. They still say it's an over-the-counter opportunity to buy a, a tag in Idaho. However, like you said, you go into your account, you have to buy a license in order to buy a tag. So you buy your license ahead of time for 170 bucks or whatever it is. Yeah. And then they stick you in this waiting room. Mm-hmm. And then at 10 o'clock, they all of a sudden dish out these random numbers that say, you might have been the first one to log in here this morning and get ready to buy your tag, but you are number 10,451 in line to buy your tag. And you get to watch the little status bar. There are 10,450 people in front of you. And then an hour later, there are 9,964 people in front of you. And you realize all the tags are gone at this point. So you aren't going to get one. So I don't know how it's, it's nothing but a lottery. I mean, it really, at this point, is a right. lottery. You are given a random number that yeah. determines your place in line. So the online yeah. portion of it is is a it's a lottery. However, if you live somewhere close to Idaho, you can drive across the border to a fishing game regional. Quiet. No, no, it's quiet. It's, this is it has to happen so they can make a change to the system. Okay. Otherwise, everybody who's driving and buying these tags, but that again, you're taking a gamble. Because if you're going to drive six hours or eight hours to Idaho and stand in line at a place, you may or may not get the license or the tag you want. 
But then when the system goes down, you may be standing there for eight or 10 hours without an option to, to do it. And then it comes back up online and all these people online get the tag. So, I mean, it's, it's never a guarantee. Yeah. People have, have learned that I have a chance if I drive there, but it's a bigger risk. They've, they've just got to change the system. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting to see what has happened in Idaho, what's happened in other states. There's this called a uh, thing called the artificial scarcity theory. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we saw it in Montana. There's a unit in Montana that the elk hunting got so bad, they put it on a limited entry unit to protect the few remaining bulls. And when they put it on a limited entry unit, demand went through the roof. <laughs> Because everyone's like, oh, look, this is hard to draw. Must be oh, good. This, is, this is a limited entry tag. It must be good. And the Region 3 big game manager called me, and she's like, Randy, what's the deal here? I'm like, well, anytime you make something scarce and limited, it, it's going to create more demand. Because people are like, well, I want to have it in my back pocket as sort of a, you know, if I got it, yeah. yeah. And so... Now, she says, I tell these people, this is a terrible unit to hunt. <laughs> it, 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 the bull to cow ratios are in the crapper. The total elk herd numbers are in the crapper. Don't don't waste your points here. But people are like, oh, boy, it's a limited entry. I, there's yeah. a limited uh, quantity. So well, that, that when, biologist just wants to hunt there herself. So that's why she's telling everybody it's bad. That's, yeah, no, I'm, I'm theorist or. No, I, I'm here to vouch for you. It sucks. <laughs> I, I don't hunt there. Uh, but, you know, if you look at Idaho, what was it, five years ago when you guys cinched down the non-resident tags by for deer and elk by unit or core yeah. or region or whatever, the total number of tags that you guys gave prior to that was way, way less than how many people get in line now to buy an Idaho tag. Oh, yeah. So back in the, if if if, uh, if you look at how, how much interest there was in Idaho back in the day, if there, if there would have been this many people interested, it would have, they would have sold out five years ago so fast. <laughs> but you guys didn't put a cap on it back then, really. Or there was not a danger of running out of tags. Exactly. Yeah, we've had the same cap forever. And so, you know, that argument of, oh, there's so many non-resident hunters. Well, there's no more non-resident tags then. You know, it's been capped. So that's not an excuse. I think the problem is people get concentrated. So that's why the fishing game said, okay, we're only going to allow a certain amount of people in each unit to help spread everything out. So same number of tags. Or, I mean, they did reduce the tags there a little right. bit. Um, but the idea was will force them into certain areas so that it can't all, because before, literally, you know, the non-resident tags could all go to one zone, one area, right. they, all 17,000 or however many of them there were, could end up in the same place. So now they're spread out, um, but I wanted to, I've got a so, historical cunning uh, success rate here, because you brought up a point that I, uh, I've been wanting to make for quite a while the argument against, you know, technology and everything. But I have all the statistics from going back to Corey's looking at, at spreadsheets right now. I can tell because his brow is all furled up. Oh, I, like, I've got it pulled up here. So going back to 1995. So in 2001, 
We've got every single unit in Idaho, every single season, and these are over-the-counter, so not taking into account anything controlled. Uh, success rates, percentage of six points. Idaho's been tracking all of that since uh, the late 90s. Yeah. And the overall success rate in, well, let me just do this. I'm going to freeze this, this row because it'll help me be able to see it here a little better. Uh, so we've got success rate and then total number of hunters in, let's go 2001. So 22 years ago, success rate overall. This is antlerless, antlered, rifle, muzzleloader, archery, anything that you could buy over the counter in 2001. Success yep. rate was 18.14%. Okay. And total number of hunters was 150,000, 108,000, 108. 109,000. Okay. If you round up 109,000 okay. and they killed almost 20,000 elk in 2001. Yep. Okay. Now I'm not going to go through every year, but I'll just jump ahead to 2022. Okay. Are we over or above the 18.14% success rate? 17.1. Okay. And so as you look through, and that's the thing that you know, I want to do a graph on, but it hasn't varied by more than 2% since 2001 to 2022. It's been so, 165 to 20% success rate. It so hasn't changed they, anything. It's gone down. There's a slight trend of success rates going down. Okay. So yeah. you could make the argument of, well, yeah, success rates have gone down because there's so many more people that the elk are smarter and they're getting harder to hunt. You know, the technology advancements make it easier to kill them when you can find them, but now they're harder to find. You know, whatever it is, the success rates, which are what the, the game agencies really manage for, are staying the same. You know, they aren't changing much at all yeah. the number of hunters on the landscape you know you yeah. hear all of our resident hunters in every state say non-residents are the devil they you know there's yeah. way too many of them there's yeah. way more people out in the field randy and Corey have ruined elk hunting by generating all of these new elk hunters everywhere you go now there's just all these new elk hunters okay 2001 so, 2001 right 109,000. you know how many elk hunters were in idaho in 2022 yeah, 70, I want to know. 76,000. What? Hold yeah. on. So a drop of 30,000? 30, 30,000 fewer elk hunters in Idaho than there was 20 years ago. Wait, yeah. now that, that everybody says, no, yeah. there's triple the number of elk hunters. And they also say there's way too many non-residents, even though it's been capped for... 20 five some years. years in Idaho. Yeah, oh, yeah. five, year, five yeah. years ago, it got reduced and capped by, by unit. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's huh. been, uh, so just hmm. looking at, I just want to go like 2017. So if we go back six years, 78,000 elk hunters, 17% success. 2018, 17% success, 81,000 elk hunters. 2019, 16.5% success, 85,000 elk hunters. 2020, 17.5% success, 86,000 elk hunters. 2021, 16.5% success, 77,000 elk hunters. I mean, it is so, nothing has changed. Like, it's it, it's keeping pretty straight lines. So, what's the issue? 
I want I want well, people to comment. You know, send us an email. Tell us what's really the issue here. Randy and I have not ruined hunting. We have not generated all these elk hunters coming in. Yes, there are changes to processes and how you can get elk tags. Yes, there are advancements in technologies that allow you to scout differently and everything. But there are 30,000 fewer elk hunters in Idaho each year than there were 20 years ago. Advancements wow. in technology have not changed success rates at all. They've not, if anything, they've gone down by one or two percent. So what's what's the excuse? Is it wolves? Is it, you know, I mean, let's put yeah. the blame where it really is. But that, those are statistics. That is, this is not being made up. I went through and there are 1,600 caller uh, Excel cells in each of these years' spreadsheets that have been compiled. And hmm. this is what it is. Wow. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, now we have some. Now we have some fodder to at least defend ourselves when people say that we've ruined it <laughs> and we've brought all these elk hunters in, and all of these extra elk hunters are just ruining it. Uh, There's no elk left, and yeah, yeah, I we get those comments. I just like no, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Someone taught me how to do this stuff, and someone was nice enough to work their butt off to put more elk on the landscape. I'm going to do the same thing that someone did for me. And uh, I, you know, I get people are going to, it's, it's cool to have to have something to blame, you know, whether it's wolves or, you know, Corey and Randy or but whatever, you know, technology, you know, yeah. oh, they should have never come up with digital maps or because I do feel that digital maps have, if there's ever been something that revealed where my quote unquote honey holes were. Yeah. When digital maps became available on phones, I don't have any "quote unquote" honey holes anymore. Yeah. The whole world knows no secret elk spots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, it's we get that stuff, and I, I, I get that people are frustrated, you know, because something didn't work out the way they wanted that year. But if in uh, you've heard me say it a million times. If you want to improve your odds, and I don't care what species it's for, put more critters on the mountain. That's they we we uh, do and and we you've heard me go into my scarcity versus versus abundance thinking. Uh, that's research is real; it's out there if you look into it. Uh, you know, are we going to be scarcity thinkers and say, well, let's just fight over something and not do anything to improve what we're the the amount of you know the size of the pie as we've always called it or are we going to try put more on the on the landscape and that's that's just the way i look at it and yeah. we, we've done the we've limited the number of people the number of people you know there's a quota on the, the non-resident tags in idaho most states mm -hmm. have that uh, yeah. so so we've done that we've limited it we've we've made it scarce yeah. Now we're we're looking for somebody to blame because our success rates are not good. But technology has made success rates so high now there's no elk. I mean it's just we're talking in circles. When we really stop and look at it, what you just said is the best solution. Get yeah. more access, get more animals on the landscape, quit worrying about if there's two extra non-resident hunters or if somebody's sharing information. It's happening, that stuff's going on. Let's do something yeah. about it. Let's not just complain on the internet about it. Let's get involved. Let's make let's make more opportunity. Yeah. That's what's gonna change well, it. Yep. Well, 
you know, as you're saying that, I can hear all the Colorado guys saying, wait a second, Corey, that might be the case in yeah. Idaho, but let, let, let me know. tell you what's happened in Colorado with all of our over-the-counter units. And in response to that pressure, Colorado has had, it's kind of like you have in Idaho, a huge growth in resident population. Yep. And uh, so the residents, as it should be, residents should get priority in every state. And that's why we have a state-based model. And we can go into why that is going back to 1842 when the U.S. Supreme Court said wildlife was one of the assets retained by the states, never granted to the federal government when we formed this country. Therefore, the fishings, hawkings, and fowlings, I think is what they called it back <laughs> in that decision. What they meant is wildlife. Yeah. Is a, is a right retained by the state and held in trust for the citizens of that state. Not for the citizens of other states, but for the citizens of that state and their support for it was this thing called the 10th Amendment of the United States Constitution. So anyone who tells me we need a federal-based system of wildlife, mm -hmm. I'm like, well, first of all, I think you've lost your mind. Second of all, we have this thing called the Con U.S. Constitution, that is a pretty important document. You know, it's kind of what we live by around, uh, at least I thought, I thought it had some relevance. And it says, any rights not granted to the federal government are retained by the state kind of by default. So it's got to be a right explicitly granted to the federal government before it's a federal system. And so that's why we have a state-based model. People yep. may not like it. If you don't live in an elk state, you might say, I hate this system. Well, I, I don't know what to tell you, but, you know, it's been around for 181 years now. Uh, well, I, I pay taxes on federal land. I should be able to go and hunt animals on federal land anyway. You, know, you hear that argument. All, all the, time. the time and, and you the, are more the, than welcome to go and hike right. backpack camp all that but those animals are a possession and a trust you know, asset for of the state of the, the residents of that state right and so that court case addressed this very issue that you brought up it's called Martin versus Waddell and it said regardless of where this wildlife lives it does not matter who owns the the deeded property it doesn't matter that it's on federal land or state land or private land that has no bearing to who has say and control over the the trusteeship of the wildlife <laughs> that moves back and forth across this land so i ask people if, if you want to make the case that hey i am a u.s citizen and therefore, I shouldn't have any restrictions against my ability to hunt federal land. Well, you're also you're you're then saying that land ownership <laughs> should be what drives hunting allocation. Okay, let's take that to to its next step. That, that is a parallel. Yeah, do you want the private landowners to have all the tags? In Montana, we are two-thirds private land. You're saying you want the landowners of Montana then to have control. Access to those wildlife. To, yeah, to two-thirds of the wildlife in Montana. That's what you're really saying when you're making that case. And I get the frustration. I understand it. I wish I could be on the same footing as New Mexico residents for drawing out tags, but I'm not, and I shouldn't be. 
as much as my personal desires are to be. Yeah. yeah, I shouldn't be. And that is the model that this country has used for wildlife since 1842. And has to. I mean, that's the that's the model that's going to work. Like you said, if we go to land-based wildlife management, land ownership-based wildlife management, that's a lot of yeah. wildlife lives on private land. And yeah. now it becomes even a bigger scheme of who's got the deepest pockets to be able to hunt the king's wildlife. Right. And so if you think about the history of the people who came here from Europe, they got arms chopped off. They got put into, you know, indentured servancy for shooting the king's hog or deer or whatever, whatever it may be. So when the, this is this was something that was prevalent and a big issue when a lot of those folks came to the, the new land called America. And they made a conscious decision. This, this wasn't by, by some random <laughs> circumstance. They made the conscious decision that in this country, it will not be the king's deer. Yep. Well, that was a long time ago. Things have changed, so we probably need to relook at that, right? Yeah. So <laughs> if we're going to look at that, do we no longer hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator, with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Are we going to say that doesn't matter either? Man, but, well, there's some people saying that, yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, yeah. We, we, th this, this argument gets made all the time. And I get it's, it's an expression of frustration. For people who, you know, I don't, I, I can't hunt elk in South Dakota because they don't give any to non-residents. No. I can't hunt moose in North Dakota. North Dakota gives away more moose tags than my state of Montana. And in Montana, we give away 10% of our moose tags to non-residents. North Dakota gives away zero moose tags to non-residents. And yep. that's their right to do that because this is a state-based asset. And a lot of people want to try and say, well, we should all be beneficiaries of the public trust. You are a beneficiary of a public trust, but it's the public trust of wildlife in the state of which you are a citizen. Yep. So I can really wish, boy, I'd love to go to North Dakota and shoot one of those big moose they're shooting there. But guess what? I'm not one of the beneficiaries of their public trust arrangement that holds the wildlife and trust for their citizens of North Dakota. So I have no standing. Well, and there's been lawsuits, you know, the New Mexico mm -hmm. was sued. Yeah. The state of New Mexico was sued because they were discriminating against where people lived and how they were delivering their, their wildlife yeah. tags. Arizona and, same, was, was sued also. Yep. And, and both of those, you know, there, there was a short term little, victory for the people who brought the case but those were overturned yeah. and yeah ultimately and now, it comes down to the state can discriminate based on where you live on how they allocate wildlife opportunities right. you know and if you think about it from the terms of a trust a trust has trustees a trust has a corpus in other words the asset and in the, this case wildlife and wildlife opportunity and it has beneficiaries so 
the trustees are responsible for managing the trust corpus, the wildlife, on behalf of the beneficiaries. Not and only every, are they responsible for it, they're mandated. Mandated. Under most, yes, but can't say they always do that. <laughs> but so the point is, though, how do you become a beneficiary? You are a beneficiary because of where you are a citizen. I have no rights to claim uh, Arkansas should manage ducks for me or that Texas should manage white-tailed deer for me or that Alaska should manage doll sheep for me because I'm not a resident in any of those states. Any opportunity I get from those states is merely because the trustees have said, there's enough here that we will share some of this with people who are not a beneficiary. In a lot of times, the name of revenue, yeah. because there is an opportunity there that, you know, residents would be up in arms if we tried to generate enough revenue from our, right. our portion of our state-owned wildlife just from the residents. So they say, you know what, if you're willing to give up, say, 10% of your pool of this wildlife, we can generate a whole bunch of revenue because of the scarcity here and people's willingness to the demand to come and hunt our animals. And yep. we'll make up a, a majority of our revenue in doing that. The, op the other yep. option is we could shut off. I mean, any state could say, nah, no non-residents are going to come and hunt or fish in our state because we own, we own them. And we're not going to let anybody in here. There's nothing anybody can do about that. And we feel that our residents will make up the, the revenue. You know, I think there's a, I don't know. I, I see states that are starting to go that way. Mm -hmm. Maybe not completely, but, you know, once they realize, hey, residents are willing to pay an extra 20%, uh, mm -hmm. we can just get rid of the whole debacle of December 1st in Idaho and not give out any non-resident tags. Uh, that's, that's what a trustee is charged with balancing. Yep. Okay. We have these beneficiaries that are state citizens we want them to enjoy this wildlife asset, this corpus of the trust, but we don't want them to have to pay a lot. So we're going to sell X percentage or X number of tags to non-residents, and we're going to rake them over the coals. <laughs> we're going to follow the Montana model where, where, Montana. Where, where you non-residents are going to pay 40x or maybe even more what the what our residents pay For but the you know exact what? same thing yeah yeah so i i know some people don't like it and i know people say well it's becoming a rich man's game or you know you hear that all the time yeah as long as i've been alive non-resident hunting has been expensive my dad and his hunting buddies they thought it was a big deal if they went to the next county to yeah. hunt something. So if we put it in the bigger perspective, I never dreamed I would be blessed with the opportunity to travel to as many states as I do to hunt. That, that just was a foreign concept. When I was growing up, my parents and grandparents are like, I'm not, that's, that's expensive. I, I'm not going to do that. As a percentage of what my dad made as a Jippo logger who, you know, couldn't even afford his fuel bill down at the jobber station, for him to have went to Colorado elk hunting, he'd have been like, no way, that, that is insane. That, that's like, 
ten percent of my annual frivolous spending. There's no way I can put a priority on being able to do that. So my dad's generation thought non-resident hunting was so ridiculously expensive that they didn't do it. So it, this uh, this statement that it's a rich man's game or a woman's game. <laughs> it's always been. It has always been that way. Probably I, more so then than it is now because we are able, you know, I, I think without very many exceptions, most people who want to hunt elk in another state are able to make that happen. I mean, it might, it might take some sacrifice. You might have to give up some things financially. You may have to work an extra job or do some overtime, but there are opportunities with very few limitations that if yeah. you want to go and, and do something like that, whether it's duck hunting in Arkansas, whether it's elk hunting in Colorado, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, you can make it happen. Now, there are opportunities yeah. from a financial standpoint to make that happen. Now, when tags become private, you know, when the privatization of, of opportunity, such as landowner permits and things like that get involved, then that access can become a rich man's state or a rich man's right. sport. Yep. But the actual ability to go and hunt an animal uh, is no more out of reach and maybe less so today financially than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. I, 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 I always hesitate to get into these discussions, Corey, because <laughs> I can just see people driving down the road, banging their fist on the dashboard. You SOBs, you don't understand. I, I do understand. In fact, we have a video that we have put the final bow on and we're going to publish it. I don't know when. And I'm waiting for a huge amount of blowback from this video. And it's a video of how I was able to fulfill my hunting dreams financially. Because I grew up in a very poor logging town. My parents divorced when I was 10. I'm the oldest of three. My mom was a waitress in a diner. No one had money to, and the, I, I know in the, this in sounds the 70s. Like, yeah. <laughs> so I, I know people are thinking I'm trying to paint this as a woe is me. That's not why I'm painting this story. I'm painting this story that. People think that if you have some successes in life, you work hard, you take some risks, and maybe they pay off because you got a little lucky to go with your hard work, that somehow that was the path that you were born into. In this little town of Big Falls, Minnesota, we were all so poor, we didn't know we were. The whole town was on the wrong side of the tracks. We, we, we didn't know. We all had to figure it out. We, we, you know, I've been self-employed since I was about eight. <laughs> I started a lawn mowing service. I, I started a bait shop. I picked night crawlers. I trapped minnows. I had a trap line for weasels and muskrats and mank. And then on the weekends, once you got big enough that you weren't going to cut your leg off, you got to go work out in the woods. And so that, that's all I knew. So I, I pay for my own college. I do everything and da, da, da. But I, I want people to have the ability to satisfy their hunting dreams. And that gets back to what you just said, Corey, of how if somebody makes it a priority, 
the odds are they can go do this. But and it's got to be a priority. And there are a lot of places in the world that still enjoy that opportunity and those right. freedoms to be able to say, you know what, I want to to be able to go and hunt animals in another state. That's my desire. There are people yeah. in another country like, I want to be able to have warm bread for dinner. You know, and that's <laughs> that's their focus and their priority, and we lose touch of that. And I mean, it's a it's a resource. It is a it's a business model, but we live in a pretty special place that allows us those opportunities where we are arguing about, well, it's not fair because they get to do this and they get to do that. Well, right. nobody's entitled to anything, but if you work hard, there's an opportunity to earn just about anything you want to be able to do. The sky's the limit. Yeah. And so in this video, I talk about when I turned 30, I remember sitting down and feeling this, you know, I'm never going to get to do this. I can't afford that. I'm never going to get, you know, and I, I've had myself in that, if, I don't know if you want to call it the must be nice theory. You know, I, I would look at guys who went on hunts and I'd be like, oh, must be nice. Well, I, uh, I sat down on my 30th birthday and I told my wife, I'm like, look, Kim, I want to go do these things someday before I die. There are four or five places I really want to go and they're expensive, but it's a priority for me. And I'm willing to make a lot of sacrifices. So for 25 years, I, in the household funds, I carved away 200 bucks a month. And $200 a month for me and my family in 1994, when I just paid off student loans, we're, I think we're still paying off doctor bills from having a baby. Eh, you know, I, I wanted to start my own CPA firm. And then when I did that, I, I wanted to have my own office building. $200 a month for me was like a sacrifice of the nth degree. But it was my priority. And I asked my wife, what is your priority? I, I let's let's get disciplined. Let's let's quit doing some of the things that pollute or, or make it foggy about what our priorities are. Because I realized that every time I spend money, it's a statement of what my priorities are, at least totally. with any discretionary money. Anytime I decide I'm gonna go and borrow money for something, that's a statement of what my priority is both short-term and long-term. And I said, my priority is this. I want to go hunt sheep in Alaska. I want to hunt the Cassiars. I want to hunt the Yukon. And I want to hunt the Mackenzie Mountains before I die. So I've, you know, I've done three of those four now. And I'm very thankful that most people say, man, that's so cool that you saved and you made, this, is a, this was a goal you set when you were 30 and I want people to, to understand that whatever that goal is, you got to make it a priority. If that is your dream, if that's what you want to do. And maybe you say, look, I want to hunt elk in the West every year for the rest of my life. And that's what you're going to set some money aside for. And your spouse is going to do the same for whatever his or her priorities are. It, it's kind of a little bit of a, I don't know who this Dave Ramsey guy is, but everyone tells me he's like some 
like financial expert or whatever. And the crew is like, man, you're sounding like Dave Ramsey. I'm like, I don't know who the hell he is. There used to be a, there used to be a Dave Ramsey hockey player. I knew it, but (laughs) so point is in all of this stuff to say, this is a rich man's game. It always has been. And the people who have went and done it are the people who made it a priority. My dad didn't make it a priority because he liked really cheap beer and lots of it. And he liked cigarettes and smokes and, uh, you know, something like that was never a priority on my dad's list. So he was never going to go do it. But it's a priority for me. And so through making these monthly sacrifices, if you want to call it that, driving an older car, I mean, we could have moved into a bigger house earlier if we would have wanted to, but it just... It's like, well, that means I'm not going to get to go do these things that I want to do. And I, I'm really struggling with how do you tell people that when you're on, on the back end of that tube, yeah. right? You're, you're coming out the other end. And I'm trying to explain to them when I started entering this journey, it seemed really difficult. But once I got in the mode of doing it, it was not, I no longer had this oh, must be nice when I saw someone someone talk about they, you know, they went grizzly hunting in the Yukon or they went wherever it might have been. You know, they they went to Arizona on an elk hunt. I was like, holy cow, man. Now, (laughs) yeah, once I decided this was going to be my priority, it became like this positive thing. It was no longer this, oh, you know, the other guy, you know, must be nice. And I I really felt it last month when I was in the Yukon. The the satisfaction of having a great hunt and being with great people was like it always is. But I really I was sitting there on this mountain overlooking this unbelievable landscape that I've dreamed of and it exceeded my expectation. And the satisfaction of thinking back 30 some years ago when I decided this was 20 some years ago that this was going to be my priority and to have worked and worked and saved and checked every box and being able to say I did it the accomplishment of of a plan the the carrying out of a, of a plan that got me to a dream whether I would have shot the smallest caribou or the smallest moose in the Yukon wouldn't have really mattered. The real satisfaction internally came from setting a goal and accomplishing it. And I'm, I'm trying to put that into words in a way where people don't just roll their eyes and say, oh, well, you're an accountant, you're, you know, da-da-da. <laughs> Do it, accountants it, really have to save money? I mean, really, yeah. do that? I know. And so when, I, when we get these emails about, you know, Western hunting has become a rich man's game, we get a bunch of emails also from people who say, you know what, I've figured out how I can go and hunt elk in the West every year. And yeah, I got to make a few sacrifices, but I do it, yep. you know? And so. Well, there's such a deeper, I, deeper discussion there too on, you know, are you a doctor? Are you an engineer? Are you an accountant? Are you a you know a factory worker? All these different things. It really doesn't matter. And you know, I I see the younger generation basketball season starts tonight. I've been I spent this week at open gym, so I'm hanging out with 
15, 16 year old boys again and seeing that mentality. Okay. And, you know, there's, they have to learn hard work. And when you learn yeah. the principle of hard work, it doesn't matter what your job, but when you learn discipline, it doesn't matter. I mean, you're going to be able to live comfortably, whatever that means. You're going to make decisions that allow you to live within your means and live comfortably. And within that landscape, there's going to be an opportunity to make sacrifices and save. And whether you yeah. want to buy a lift kit for your truck and that's your dream, whether you want to go hunt elk in Arizona, whether you want to do a family vacation to Disneyland, whatever it is, you have opportunity to save mm -hmm. and to build. And that's, that's more a matter of discipline and decision and priority than it is of what you were born with, what you have to work with, where you are in life. You know, I yeah. think that that's a more important thing to learn at a younger age than, you know, so many people see they have their dreams and they just say, I want to be rich. And they sit there and they flip through YouTube for six hours straight and they go to bed upset and jealous because somebody else has more money than them. It's like, well, what could have you done with that six hours that you just wasted? <laughs> you, you work yeah. an eight hour day and you come home to a young family, you, you know, all these things, there might not be a time right there, an opportunity to build what you want to build. But when you have that vision, when you have the priority and then you have the discipline to make it happen, anything's possible. Yeah. And uh, that, that kind of is what I'm, I'm trying to express and I don't know how you do it well i I'm, I'm just trying to state it from my standpoint of how my life was and when i got to a certain age i realized that 99 percent of my happiness and 90 i was in control of 99 percent of my happiness and 99 percent of my future based on my attitude and my perspectives all of a sudden life just got <laughs> so much easier so much more fulfilling that I, I I don't know how you how you convey that I don't know how you say it I don't know I think people almost got to live through it but I I I've, I'm a hundred percent convinced that m my happiness is driven by me absent some crazy health event we are pretty much in charge of our own futures yep. and I whether that's you you got a future where you want to hunt a lot like you and I are blessed to do or your future is hey I want to go and play a golf course in every state or I want to go and travel Europe or I want to go whatever it is you are the one who's in charge of that and for the person who has done that and set those goals and made it work I don't know how to answer the question when it's posed of, oh, must be nice. All I can say <laughs> is, yeah, it's really nice to have had a dream, had a plan, and seen it come together. What's really nice about it is my health held up long enough for me to do it. Yeah. That's, and, and I know this, this is really getting out from maybe what people listen to this podcast for about elk hunting or my terrible marriage advice. Uh, <laughs> but I just, I, I want people to feel empowered. I want them to understand that when I started applying across multiple states every year in 1995, it was a huge financial 
accommodation to my household. And I didn't apply at every state. I started in Colorado. And then I tried to build enough pot of money that I could add another state every year. It wasn't like I got out of college and someone handed me $100,000 and said, here you go, Randy, just hunt your life away. <laughs> really? That's not how it works? Uh, no. I mean, yeah. it, I, I mean, I could get into the stories of how much risk I took you know, along the way. And I, this is where I feel that I was, I say, you, people hear me say, I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. Because when I did take a lot of risks and really got myself out there a little further, some people get a streak of bad luck and it all collapses. Yeah. I lucked out. I did not have that streak of bad luck or bad health or whatever at my most exposed Critical time. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't care... What people say, oh, Randy, you worked your butt off, blah, blah, blah. You don't attribute that to luck. There's no. It's like you're coming. <laughs> yeah. I mean, life isn't fair. And some people might have taken the same exact risks, put themselves in the same exact situation I did, and they would have had some bad luck, and the outcome would have been different. Yep. So I'm here to say I am the luckiest guy on the planet. And my job is to get up every day and, and show appreciation for that. And I want everybody who's listening, who has a dream of hunting elk every year or some special trip or whatever it might be, you and your spouse, it's, it, it's a decision. It's a daily decision of, okay, I'm going to go buy some more snooze or I'm going to buy a 12-pack of beer or I'm going to, you know, my truck only has 45,000 miles on it, but I'd like a newer one. And it, every time you do that, that's a statement of what your priority is for for your financial future. Absolutely. And, uh, so, anyhow. No, I I think that's a, a great place to start to land the plane here because uh, it's Veterans Day. And there's been a yeah. lot of sacrifices made by a lot of people that enable us to have the freedoms that we do to be able to have those dreams and pursue yep. happiness and and all of that and so uh on veterans day we say thank you and yes. uh, like you said thank you is is not enough but hopefully today is a day to remind us that every day we need to be grateful for the sacrifices that have been made and that continue to be made and if you're listening uh you're not going to hear this on veterans day but take an opportunity to Think a veteran, and I just, you know, I've got a, a quick story I want to share. On on Fourth of July, I was mm -hmm. cleaning out my garage, and there's two bows hanging there that just haven't been shot. You know, I retired yeah. them a couple of years ago or whatever, and I thought, how can I do with these? And I thought, it's Fourth of July. I'm going to give them away to a veteran. So on cool. Instagram, I just jumped <laughs> out and said, hey, if you know a veteran, I've got a couple bows. Here are the specs on them. If you know somebody that could use them, send me an email. Well. That's all we are, not an email, but a message on, on Instagram. And that's always a, a gamble and a roll of dice asking people <laughs> to contact you on Instagram. But it yeah. was so inspiring to read. And, and I didn't want people, you know, recommending themselves. I wanted somebody to recommend, hey, if you know somebody that's a, that's a veteran or that's served or is serving, let me know. And hundreds of messages. And so to be able to read all of them, some of them are short. Hey, I've got a buddy that lives down the road. He's in the army or whatever, but so many of them took time to detail the sacrifices that these individuals make and why they would be deserving of 
of receiving a bow. And yeah. so I picked one. His name was Colin, and I sent him a bow, and he was more than grateful. Like just, yeah. it was it was a huge highlight, and it's something that's sitting in my garage, not being used. Uh, but he sent me a, a message on September 24th. It all came together this year. I finally filled the tag, hit him at 20 yards on a solo hunt, September 19th. So happy that I could give you the thanks you asked for. I know it's been a minute, but I should have have a thank you gift in the mail this week. Thank you for the bow. It's an honor to be hunting with it and to continue to carry it for many more with a picture of him and an elk. So cool. something is so like you said, thank you isn't enough. Right. Sending a bow to one person isn't enough, but it's a thank you to one person. And if we all take the time to to do something, just to say thank you to them, uh, it's going to yeah. mean a lot to them. And it'll help us appreciate maybe a little more of the freedoms that we do have and maybe quit squabbling about the, the few things that we don't have and making excuses and using jealousy to, to justify those feelings. And so on yeah. Veterans Day, thank you to, uh, to all who have served. Thank you to all who continue to serve. And uh, we live in the greatest nation in the world, although it's got some issues and some problems. Uh, some weaknesses, it's still the best place to live, and we still enjoy the the greatest opportunities of any nation in the world. Oh, man, Corey, you, I don't know. You you winged that, and you didn't read it from a script. And uh, <laughs> that's I, I couldn't say it any better, and all the things we've talked about, you know, the blessings I've had, none of those happen without those people who put their lives out there every day and their families who are back here while they're serving yeah. those families make huge sacrifices uh yeah i i wish i had a better word than thank you but that's the only word i know of and you know the things that that we can do uh to help uh people is also a a wonderful thing you yeah. know where you and i are blessed that we get to touch a lot of people and and if we can do that, it makes it makes the world a better place. So, uh, your your story there, that uh, given that bow is, you know, that's that's cool, and just speaks to you. And well, no, and I, I don't share that to to pat myself no. on the back for giving a bow. I share it because no, we, I, we we take for granted sometimes that you know I have a new bow, and maybe somebody who has given so much so that I have the freedoms. Maybe they don't have a bow or a free, you know, a nice bow. And so to be able to to do something yep. there to honor what he's done and to give back just in a small way uh, makes a big difference to them. So, yeah. And for those of us who can, let's do it. Yep. And so. if you can't, find somebody and say thank you at the very least. Yep. Just be, be mindful that uh, others are sacrificing so that we we can live comfortable. Yeah. Well, that is a good place to wrap it up. Excellent. Well, you, 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 have, uh, you have a great day. Enjoy your basketball just, practice. And, I was just going to say, I've, uh, we've got our overnight midnight madness tonight. So practice starts from 7 to 9, and then from 9 o'clock tonight till 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, it's a gym full of a whole bunch of young men who uh, are going to spend the night there and soak up wow. as much basketball fun as they can. and next week wow. we get into the the discipline and the structure of basketball practice again all right well if you need me to come and talk about investing your assets like fouls uh <laughs> let me know i'll show up there 
in the interim, I looked, I looked at the Montana weather forecast. I'm going to go get some suntan lotion and hang out on the on the bank of the river fishing for the next week or something. All right. Maybe maybe an elk or deer will walk by. But probably not in that weather. They probably hold up somewhere in the shade. Probably, but well, folks, thanks for being here. Really appreciate all of you who listen and uh, keep sending us the emails. They're great material for us to come up with ideas. And uh, like Corey said, for all of those who are veterans who have served and are serving, our deepest gratitude to all of you.